I don't know what to say, really. Three minutes to the biggest battle of our professional lives all comes down to today. Either we heal as a team or we're going to crumble. Inch by inch, play by play, till we're finished. We're in hell right now, gentlemen. Believe me. And we can stay here, get the shit kicked out of us, or we can fight our way back into the light. We can climb out of hell. One inch at a time. Now, I can't do it for you. I'm too old. I look around, I see these young faces, and I think, I mean, I made every wrong choice a middle-aged man can make. I, uh, I pissed away all my money, believe it or not. I chased off anyone who's ever loved me. And lately, I can't even stand the face I see in America. You know, when you get old in life, things get taken from you. I mean, that's, that's, that's part of life. But you only learn that when you start losing stuff. You find out life's this game of inches. So is football. Because in either game, life or football, the margin for error is so small. I mean, one half a step too late or too early, and you don't quite make it. One half second too slow, too fast, you don't quite catch it. The inches we need are everywhere around us. They're in every break of the game, every minute, every second. On this team, we fight for that inch. On this team, we tear ourselves and everyone else around us to pieces for that inch. We claw with our fingernails for that inch. Because we know when we add up all those inches, that's gonna make the fucking difference between winning and losing. Between living and dying. I'll tell you this, in any fight, it's the guy who's willing to die who's gonna win that itch. And I know if I'm gonna have any life anymore, it's because I'm still willing to fight and die for that itch. Because that's what living is. The six inches in front of your face. Now I can't make you do it. You gotta look at the guy next to you. Look into his eyes. Now I think you're gonna see a guy who will go that inch with you. You're going to see a guy who will sacrifice himself for this team because he knows when it comes down to it, you're going to do the same for him. That's a team, gentlemen. And either we heal now as a team or we will die as individuals. That's football, guys. That's all it is. Now, what are you going to do? Hello. Everybody, this is Oscar Dahl. I'm here with Matthew Knutson, and this is We Like Movies Retro Spectating 1999 Oliver Stones Any Given Sunday. Not only do we have normal Oscar and Matt here, we have our old pal Dan Kelly as a little guest host. Dan, how's it going? It's going all right. I'm not feeling at my best right now, thanks to shenanigans last night, but uh, hopefully we'll still be able to be competent during this. We played golf yesterday morning, and we started drinking hard seltzers at about uh, 11 a.m. So. <laughs> oh, 
nice. And continued drinking uh, hard seltzers until well after the streetlights came on. So what's what's your brand of hard <laughs> seltzer these days? So at the golf course we were at, they were serving Trulies. But given okay. the choice, uh, I'm a White Claw or an Arctic Summer Man myself. Matt, at one point yesterday, uh, actually had them delivered via what Uber Eats? Saucy, <laughs> saucy. Thank you very much. Saucy delivers. That was one of the sadder moments of my life: getting delivery alcohol so we could keep drinking. <laughs> Otherwise, we were gonna pass out. We wouldn't make it to dinner. Oh, those claws go down smooth. Do you know where hard seltzers are huge? I just learned this. They're big in Montana and have been for far longer than they've been big in the rest of the country. Isn't that Interesting. crazy? So the hard seltzer craze started in the Big Sky country. White claws so popular they're sold out. They can't like add new stores right now. It's nuts. Anyway, seltzer pod. That's been that's been <laughs> seltzer. We pod. like seltzer. We like seltzer. <laughs> well, on any given Sunday, three men who are slightly all hungover can get together and talk about a movie called Any Given Sunday. I is it safe to assume we all saw this in the theater? Yeah, I mean, I saw it on Christmas Day with my full family, and it's one of the more horrific viewing experiences I've had with my mom. But it is. Uh... You can get, give her a little nudge during the uh, locker room. <laughs> I saw it with my family as well, which is weird. I don't know why. What would have come? I guess it was I was like trying to reach across the aisle to my stepfather or something and be like, "Here's something we can do together since you like football." But yeah, it was very strange. Literally seated, be- seated between my my mother and my stepfather. And you know, this movie isn't hypersexual necessarily, but there's definitely nudity and there's definitely a pretty raw scene in a um, in a toilet stall yeah. with some uh, with some escorts <laughs> and some cocaine. But that's about as hardcore as it gets. That and the eyeball coming out. That's about as gnarly as the movie gets, right? <laughs> yeah, pretty much. I saw it with either my brother or our old friend of the pod, Scott Henderson, but it's one of the weirdest screenings I've ever been to because at Meridian 16, the uh, the projector broke about two hours wow. in and, and we were escorted down into the into the atrium of Meridian 16 and had to wait for 40 minutes. And so like 90% of the people in the theater like left and then you know, like 10 of us came back to watch the last 40 minutes Jeez, of the movie. It's not a yeah. short movie either. So that probably ate no. up the better part of your afternoon. <laughs> exactly. I, I don't know. At this point in my life, my, my relationship with Oliver Stone was was basically Platoon and JFK. And I don't think I was a big Wall Street guy or maybe even connected that he was a Wall Street dude. But uh, at this point in your young, burgeoning cinephile career, Matt, uh, were you a big O Stone guy? Yeah, I was I was incredibly excited for this movie. I mean, I feel like we sort of talk about this every, at least a couple times a month yeah. when we do this series. But this was another one of those films where I just like watched the trailer over and over and over on, you know, Real Player or whatever. I was just rabid for this film. Uh, we Dan and I just rewatched it. Uh, really nice Kid Rock needle drop in there. Very 1999. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, this this movie had everything going for it. I was all about Oliver Stone. I was. I, I think I had just been introduced to JFK, which kind of blew my 15 year old brain uh, at the time. I mean, JFK was a fucking revelation. Natural Born Killers blew my mind. Platoon was obviously quite important to me. I'd seen The Doors at this point. Yeah, I'd say I was definitely an Oliver Stone guy in my teenage years. I mean, I, I, I watched Platoon way too young. I remember like being over at a sleepover or something, and some. Somebody, con- somebody convinced his mom to go to Blockbuster and get us Platoon. And whatever I was, 12, 13 years old, I was like, mm, this movie is too adult for me. That's also just a, b- a bizarre choice for a 12-year-old slumber party of like, we're yeah. going to watch Platoon tonight and yeah. just get really intense with one another. He was one of those guys, yeah, he was one of those guys where like his parents were sort of checked out. You know, you could tell that like his parents were just elsewhere. And he's, he was like, you know, mom, the meatloaf, get us some Platoon. <laughs> I, I honestly think Any Given Sunday was the first Oliver Stone movie I ever saw. Really? Yeah, I think subsequent In to the that. Theater? Or at all, at all. Okay. and I think subsequent to that, I've gone back and watched. But I think that was probably my first experience with him, and it was just absolutely bizarre. Like the cuts, music choices, the uh, complete lack of coherence in everything. <laughs> but it is also uh, perfect for all that for all those reasons. It may be the stoniest stone movie i mean i really i feel like jfk natural born killers and any given sunday like they're they're stone to the nth degree right it's the uber stone not saying they're his three best movies necessarily but they are like stone turned up to 11 i've never watched this movie stoned <laughs> and i feel like i should at some point because it is basically like i hadn't seen it in probably 10 15 years but it is a three hour sort of fever yeah. dream and it makes it all the weirder that he is the announcer that's like taking us <laughs> through a lot of this insane football Ball yes, action yes. too, like yeah, he's just the the mad conductor of everything going on here. I saw it when it came out. I was also very stoked about it just because I'm a big you know sports guy, and you always want a great football movie. But I don't remember being like a huge champion of it 
afterwards uh and it's sort of fallen by the wayside for me but i did not expect upon my you know recent viewing to be uh, just so amazed at how weird this movie is this is one of the weirder movies I've, i think i've ever seen but it's also it's also has a lot of smart things to say <laughs> strangely about football and this you know the sports industrial machine <laughs> yeah was kind of prescient about a lot of like trends in football that really weren't apparent in 1999 but have become extremely apparent now well dan and i were you know we're doing some wikipedia research before we <laughs> we hopped on this movie was basically kind of frankenstein together from three different scripts right like stone optioned a book and then he also optioned John Logan's screenplay. And then he also got a hold of a completely separate screenplay, which I think was mostly about the Doctor Mandrake, uh, mm-hmm. James Woods. Mostly about James. It was like a it was like an autobiographical book written by a sports doctor. Yeah, and I think so, like talking about another doctor who was a particularly terrible one for I think the Raiders. Yeah. Um, but to go back to your point, Al, uh, Oscar, I think this is a, like a really prescient movie in that it talks about concussions and just like chewing up and spitting out these players. And I know that's been a theme throughout a lot of like sports movies, but it just feels like it captured a particular moment in the NFL where it was still extremely violent before they started legislating a lot of like the hits on the quarterback and everything and is also just kind of exposing how violent and damaging it is to these guys long term health prior to something like what is it concussion that movie with Wilson yeah tell the <laughs> yeah. truth um, have you seen concussion Oscar no probably won't I probably won't ever that's my <laughs> but guess. that's the one that we'll is sanctioned by the NFL I yeah it's just, I think that's NFL propaganda right. whereas this movie famously was not the NFL NFL was not involved with this. The NFL, as a matter of fact, were actively disengaged from this, and that's why they had to invent the AFFP, which is yeah. what the all the American all football franchises football. Yeah. This thing. Like it's I don't know. It gives you the excuse to have to invent a bunch of teams with the most hilarious names and graphic design that I've ever seen. Like the Chicago Rhinos. What were the other ones? Like the Seattle Prospectors, okay. I believe. There's like um, an ice something or another in there as well. What uh, the Bishops? Is that one of them? <laughs> those uniforms are ridiculous. Oh no, those are the Nice, but they're like, yeah, they're like Templars or something. Like that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, the Los Angeles Crusaders. I think it's the Portland, it's the Seattle Prospectors, and the Portland Timberwolves or something like that. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and isn't uh, isn't the expansion team in Albuquerque? Yeah, yeah Albuquerque Aztecs. Right? I said last we watched this the other day that like this movie is worth it all just to hear Al Pacino pronounce the word Albuquerque. But I'm sure I'm sure Stone was probably disappointed when he couldn't get the NFL involved. But I guarantee he probably was excited almost immediately because he got to invent he got to invent an entire new yeah. league, right? And he got to make up all these names and he got to work with Mary Zoffries, the Coen Brothers costume designer to create all these incredibly tacky and obnoxious uniforms. So where did he film the football scenes? Like the the, the opening scene and then the, the dome? Did, how, did you research it? Yeah, so the, the Sharks play in the Orange Bowl, which I think was the University of Miami Stadium at the time. I don't know if they play there anymore. I don't think they do. Yeah. And then the dome is actually Texas Stadium where the Cowboys played before they built that other giant monstrosity i think they like they were able to use a lot of good facilities and it looks i mean the gameplay looks real as good as they could possibly get it (laughs) i mean the settings they've got like half empty stands a lot of the time but that was probably appropriate for a middling team or something in a second rate league it is strange that it exists in the same and they could have just completely ignored the nfl they could have just pretended like the nfl doesn't exist but they literally referenced the crosstown dolphins at one point yeah like it never comes up again it's just one sentence and it's bizarre that he chose to to do that but it's kind of entertaining to think of the fact there's two football leagues that are when did somehow the, competing when did the XFL start right around this time right 2000 2001 yeah, right around this time it was when we were in high school yeah. for sure do you think Vince, Vince McMahon just watched this movie and got super excited <laughs> so yeah I want to see you guys eye get <laughs> yes. torn out he was inspired start my own football league <laughs> The insinuation, though, is that this is the this is the main league in this world, right? I mean, it's been around for decades, right? Like Pacino's been the coach of the team for they got the Pantheon Cup, right? Twenty some years, right? Yeah, yeah, the Pantheon Cup is so stupid. <laughs> the football action, though, I, I want to bring this up. It, I think it's the best football action ever put on screen. I mean, my complaint always with football movies is the action seems super staged and it's really cheesy and corny. But he does sort of get like the the chaos of football down pat. Like it's it, it feels like you're like you're fucking in the thing even if it is a little bit cheesy at times which I think is almost impossible to avoid he's so frenetic in the way he like edits everything but it comes together and works really well for those football scenes even when he's kind of overlaying crowds from the 1950s with like the modern day one but it just feels very frenetic and exciting and actually going on around you versus just some sort of like staged bad action like varsity blues or something like that funny that's another yeah. movie we've 
covered in the last <laughs> in the last 10 months. Yeah, I mean, it sounds like such a cliche, but the idea of quote unquote putting you in the action, I mean, I think he really takes that seriously and does a pretty great job of, you know, making an immersive combat film, basically, right? I mean, he keeps he keeps yeah. referring back to Ben-Hur and gladiators and all this other, you know, kind of on the nose bullshit. Yeah. But it's, you know, it's surprisingly well. I mean, there's a method to it, even though it, it certainly can get to be a little bit, like you said, frenetic. This and the XFL presaged the way that we now capture football on for broadcast, right? Like the crazy spider cams that yeah. actually go down across the field. I mean, those are the kind of, those are the sorts of angles. I remember those are the kinds of angles that when I saw Any Given Sunday, it was like, oh, I've never seen football from that angle before. And now I feel like you see it every single Sunday. I mean, yeah. is football the most cinematic sport? Yeah, baseball probably baseball. Is. Just as more dramatic. Easy, yeah, it's just easier to replicate the, the drama on screen because it's a little slower It's game, easier right? to replicate and... <laughs> They're not wearing pads and helmets that obscure their faces. So, That's I think, fair. like in terms of cinema, like the pitcher versus batter is such a one-on-one clear confrontation that it's a little bit more uh, cinematic, I would say. But. Sure, but it's funny that there. I don't know if there's ever been. We were, we've been talking about this all weekend in preparation for this conversation. I don't know if there's been a great football movie. I don't know if this is a great movie. I love this movie. Rudy's a fantastic movie. The Longest Yard is a great movie. But I, is, has there been a truly great film made about the sport of football? I don't know if we've done it yet, or if it's even. Possible. Possible. I don't think we have. I mean, uh, Friday Night Lights is also pretty darn good, I think. No, you're right. It, it, it's hard to do. I think it takes kind of a big budget and a sort of uh, ambitious scope uh, to make something really work. And uh, I, I think this is sort of the closest you're going to get to like being real in the business of football. But even then, I, th- I think there's just there's there's too many storylines to have have a really good sort of football business movie like something like Moneyball, right? Like that. Going back to Dan's point, I think baseball like the clear confrontations the stats uh, it's a more thoughtful slow game I think something like football you have to focus on the freneticism which is what Oliver Stone does here so yeah I don't, I don't know if this is peak football movie we, we seem to have not been making as many football movies these days I, I wonder if part of that is sort of like NFL's iron grip and the fact that they you know want to sue people and don't want to see their, they, they want to control the narrative if you will. yeah I mean Dan you mentioned North Dallas 40 yeah. which is a movie I probably haven't seen in 25 years I mean same here <laughs> But yeah, it's 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 kind of strange. You'd think that we would make more film considering how popular the sport is, you know, in this country at least. But I mean, at the time, I feel like... Don't forget Leatherhead. That is a, that is a bad movie. That's a, <laughs> Leatherhead is a bad movie. George Clooney no, made three up. bad movies yeah. in a row. He, I mean, he is on a hell of a cold streak as a director. I mean, Leatherheads might be a bad movie, but I want to get back to Any Given Sunday, which I actually think is a great <laughs> Okay, movie. I'm sorry. I don't mean uh, to be going off on tangents. both of you and say that, like, this is a perfect football movie. It is a terrible movie in a lot of different ways like the treatment of women the fact that like it's all just bravado and there's not actually a lot of like that money ball X's and O's or analysis but it is just kind of like it is such a great hangover movie for a day like today or I don't know like my wife who is English was talking about the fact that her college friends would watch Al Pacino's speech to get pumped up before a night out like it transcends culture it is just so corny fantastic and I don't know I just love it I, I mean that's one of the yeah. reasons I really wanted to cover this because I feel like this movie doesn't have much of a legacy beyond the inches speech which is what everybody goes back to YouTube to revisit. But I feel like people don't really talk about this movie very much. And Oliver Stone's legacy is, you know, somewhat complicated by this point because of his politics. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, I, I revisit this movie at least a couple times a year, even though it's a fucking epic. I, I don't know, why Why is this movie not a bigger deal? Why do we not talk about this film in the same breath as Wall Street and JFK? Why, is, why does this film not have much of a legacy? Because it's so silly? Because it's so over the top? Because it's so bloated? Because it's so long? I think it's the silliness. I think, I think Dan's point is a good one, which it gets... It's a lot of like the small character things kind of wrong you know treatment of women is is bad the sort of I get a little queasy at Dennis Quaid and Al Pacino sort of being the white saviors for Willie Beeman to sort of see the light and learn how to lead right which is kind of a bullshit trope but it, it gets a lot of the small sort of football trend stuff right you know like the black quarterbacks being pigeonholed as athletes and moved to you know wide receiver or cornerback when that's kind of bullshit sort of the old school coaches having to modernize the playbook when it when it doesn't work work um you know the sort of quick mass media rise to fame talking head shit that happened
happens every you know between every week like people get super famous really quick when they have one good game and sort of that that rise presages like an inevitable fall from w- w- within the media too a lot of like the sports media stuff and a lot of like just the actual football trend stuff feels really true which is part of the charm of this movie but yeah you know, some of the character stuff is is a little yeah you know, nauseating at times. i mean this thing is just so over the top and overstuffed that it's hard to take it seriously but like all those components in it are kind of amazing and wonderful in their own ways i mean you've got like these fantastic performances from people like lawrence taylor that you'd never expect or like john c mckinley as the talk radio host james woods if we want to speak about uh people whose politics have kind of obscured their <laughs> latter legacy uh, i mean dan floated last night that he feels like this is if not james woods's best performance james woods's greatest character yeah right oh uh, well you're forgetting about a little movie called Digstown. <laughs> yeah, that's okay yeah speaking of our, our buddy scott henderson <laughs> one of his all-time favorites <laughs> yeah yeah i mean do you want to just sort of like dance through this cast really quickly because it's it's pretty incredible like Pacino and um, Jamie Foxx are the quote-unquote stars but I mean this is a true ensemble and you know your Lawrence Taylor's are so fucking good like that scene in the um, in the sauna I just think is revelatory like that monologue he gives in the sauna is just incredible and like Stone holds on him and he just delivers that I mean he just rattles that whole thing off I it gives me goosebumps every time I watch it phenomenal scene and he's wonderful as Shark LeVay it's, it's kind of crazy that Lawrence Taylor I mean has he done other acting roles besides this because he is absolutely incredible in this movie and it, it, it seemed you know you mentioned James Woods maybe best performance maybe Cameron Diaz's best performance yeah. too and she, she like you know I remember there being a little bit of hand wringing when she was cast as this sort of ice queen owner role but uh she fucking she fucking nails it here like is Matt maybe you know this is Oliver Stone sort of known for extracting great performances of people you wouldn't expect like is that part of his legacy would you I mean say? he did it twice with Charlie Sheen right yeah <laughs> that's, that's very I true mean, he directed Michael Douglas to an Oscar I mean he, he, I mean JFK made that means that maybe Kevin Costner's best best performance I don't know I don't know his his accent might be a little shaky but uh, yeah. but no I think Oliver Stone is an underrated actors director for sure and uh, and he, yeah his ability to to get these incredible performances from these athletes I mean I've watched this movie 18 times in my life and I never realized until last night that Terrell Terrell Owens is basically <laughs> playing himself I mean, he doesn't have any lines or anything but he he catches I mean he scores two touchdowns in the last game right yeah but I mean like who has the worst performance of this maybe Dennis Quaid because he's got a bit of a weird accent that floats in and out on occasion. <sighs> it's yeah. it's a little goofy, but I, I kind of, I think he's kind of perfect for like watching it again last yeah. night. I was like, I can't imagine anybody else in this role. Exactly. Like, he's like, perfect. Like just kind of a hokey team first kind of guy who is also really worried about losing his job. Because he's basically playing Dan Marino, right? Yeah. Or any one of those older quarterbacks who's yeah. about to get usurped. S- um, Steve Young or whatever. But like, we're just looking at the cast right now. Like Anne Margaret is fantastic in it. Lawrence Taylor. Even Jim Brown, who doesn't have a ton of things to do in here has a couple of good speeches and his name is Montezuma Monroe in the movie, which is worth the price of admission anyway. Yeah, LL Cool J has a couple of really good scenes. Yeah. Bill um, Bellamy is great. I, yeah, Bill Bellamy. I am the greatest wide receiver that's ever lived. I can catch anything. That, that scene is too close to Dirk Diggler to me. Like, <laughs> Uh, worst performance. I'll, yeah, Lauren Holly, can I give her worst performance? Yeah, she's a little over the top, isn't she? That's a very uncomfortable scene when she when she smacks him. I mean, it's it it yeah. kind of rings true, but it's it's incredibly uncomfortable. <laughs> Remember the Lauren Holly moment? Lauren Holly really had a moment there in the '90s. You know, when she was dating Jim Carrey and she was flying high. I mean, she was a she was a big star there for a second. Star in submarine movie movies <laughs> yeah. with Kelsey Grant. Oh yeah, down Periscope. God, I saw that in the theater too. <laughs> by the way, Sadly. Matthew Modine is pretty great. Aaron Eckhart is great as Nick Crozier. The uh, offensive coordinator. Yeah, Elizabeth Berkeley, Jesse Spann was pretty good. Yeah, too. I was. A, I was just. I was trying to convince Dan of that last night. I don't think he was completely. I don't think he was completely uh, taking what I was putting. Points, Dan. Like they're just great performances all around for a huge cast too. Like I mean, Al Pacino is obviously kind of the star of this, but everyone in it is pretty fantastic. And I know it said it's overstuffed, but he fits it all in pretty well. Like there are a lot of you know uh, storylines that get picked up and put down and forgotten about, but at the same time, I don't know. I just love the the arc for Jamie Foxx. Jamie Foxx, I mean, before this, uh, this is basically his big dramatic breakout, right? Like he hadn't done 
done anything but comedy prior. Yeah, to he just had his like TV show on Fox or something, right? Where he's like a yeah. bellhop. Well, well, I mean, he was on in in well, Living. He had the Jamie Fox. Wasn't show. he on In Living Color? I think before that he was in Living Color. Then he did Jamie Fox show until 2001. So yeah, he was doing. He did this movie during his whatever CW UPN. I mean, show. I think you guys are forgetting about a little movie called Booty Call. Oh yeah, that's true. <laughs> that's that's, that's, that's a, fair. A great one crazy night. <laughs> yeah, but I mean, this was the this was the breakout. This was the turning point. Like between this and then Ali, and then of course Ray. It's like, yep, fucking superstardom uh, over the course of a few years. And he was, I think, the third choice for this role. I think it was Sean. Puff Daddy Combs. P. Diddy. Nailed it. <laughs> no one's ever sounded white. No one's ever sounded whiter than I just did. P. Diddy was uh, Oliver Stone's first choice, but apparently he couldn't throw, right? Yeah, supposedly. Yeah. That was the issue. And then Cuba Gooding Jr., he was Stone was courting, but decided he didn't want to cast somebody who was already so associated with playing a football player and had won an Oscar for playing yeah. a football player. So yeah, Jamie Foxx was, I mean, it's kind of meta, right? He was the third string choice for this role. Yeah. <laughs> he's the third string quarterback. Well, he's perfect for it. He's got the perfect physique for like a, you know, Russell Wilson type, just little quarterback, sure. kind of a Kyler Murray. Um, and, you know, I love that character. Like I said, it, it makes sense. Like 20 years later, if that guy was drafted now, he'd be a first round pick instead of a third stringer, right? What would you say is the general, how would you describe the plot of this movie? Uh, on any given Sunday, a hero will fall and a hero will rise <laughs> the end. I mean, it's a very kind of simple, but sort of elegant narrative. It's very straightforward, but it's extraordinarily like relatable and well handled and clean. And yeah, this movie bites off way more than it can chew but the central narrative is just extremely strong and I buy it and I buy that relationship between Pacino and Jamie Foxx and there's just a lot of dramatic tension there and I love that relationship it, it's a little cheesy when Jamie Foxx has like when he turns over like when he hears the inches speech and, and all of a sudden it's something clicks in his brain and he learns how to be a team player it's cheesy but it works you know like it lands I, I, I buy it Jamie Foxx makes it work but I mean is that kind of like I would say the theme of the whole thing where you've got people at the end of their career and people at the beginning of their career and like the folks at the end kind of developing that intensity like Al Pacino is able to bring at the end and rally the team or for the folks who are new which would be like Willie Beeman or even Cameron Diaz's character where she's relatively young and needs to kind of learn the rules of the game and learn how to be a leader learn how to be Just, a person yeah exactly I'm not really sure if there's a plot beyond like <laughs> The struggle of this team as like people get hurt and fill in over the course of what eight weeks? Yeah, I mean, I think it starts. I think it starts on game thirteen. Like, I think it's it's we're like three quarters of the way through the season. And that's why I find it so funny that for so much of this film, they're like playoffs, playoffs, talking about playoffs. Because when the movie starts, like this team isn't going to make the playoffs. Like, <laughs> why are they talking about playoffs? They're they're having a bad season. Well, no, so they're. Not, I don't think that's true, Matt. I think they're they like, like five hundred, right? Well, no, I think they won like eight and one in their first in the beginning of the season, and then they're on a four game, four game call streak. streak. Okay. But 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 they're having but they're having a winning season. I don't know. I don't know how many games they play in the AFFA. <laughs> it could be like a thirty-two game season. <laughs> I, I think they're on the downslide and at risk of missing the playoffs after having mostly a good okay. season. Right, okay. and then and then so Quaid gets hurt. Yeah, I guess the plot of this movie is Pacino and everyone tries to figure out a way for to get this team to win, whatever that means, right? And that sort of is a nice umbrella for everyone to have their action. And the trainer stuff is it's all going towards getting people on the field, mm-hmm. get people to win. Like Pacino dealing with his hard sort of wired beliefs about what football should be and what his playbook is and all that shit, and learning how to kind of adapt in the moment. With stuff that's worked for him in the past I mean that that's a really sort of nice uh, tie-in to a lot of real life stuff that we've seen coaches go through in football which is why despite how over the top this movie is and how silly it is at times it feels like the most real accurate football movie despite all the nonsense going on I mean any one of these narratives that we're talking about like focusing the entire movie on Willie Beeman focusing the entire movie on Tony D'Amato focusing the entire movie on Cap Rooney focusing the entire movie on uh, uh, Christina Pagniacci like I'm interested in all those movies this movie just tries to have it all and it doesn't necessarily yep. <laughs> it doesn't necessarily land at all but i that's something that i appreciated it appreciate about it it's so brazen it's biting off way more than it can chew but that's kind of part of its charm i kind of want to see an oliver stone any given sunday miniseries like yeah eight hours of this i mean it you know i listen to the bill simmons you know the rewatchables podcast every week and it can be a little silly and sometimes he can grade on me a little bit but he ends every episode by saying could this movie be a 10 episode netflix miniseries oh, really? and more often than 
not, I just roll my eyes at that because I'm a, you know, I'm a movie snob, not a TV guy. But this truly is a movie that I could see. I could see that, and I'd be interested in that. And that that sounds kind of great, actually. <laughs> Let's reboot it for Netflix. And- well, d- didn't so? What was the name of that ESPN show? That, that Playmakers, football. Was like, was Playmakers, that? I think. Playmakers, right? And yeah. Like, and NFL made them. NFL made them cancel yeah. it after they the had like a running season. back addicted to crack cocaine and stuff like that. Yeah, he showed up late to a game because he was buying crack. That was ESPN's only fictional episodic series. I think it was their first one. I don't know if they did another one after that. And Oscar's right. The NFL basically put pressure on them to cancel it, even though it was actually doing pretty well. That started in 2003. So I think maybe they looked at any given Sunday and thought the same thing. It's like, oh, this would be cool over <laughs> an entire uh, entire season of a, of a TV show. But but it adopted the more over the top and went even further, I believe. And it started Cuba Gooding Jr.'s uh, brother, I think, as the... Oh, yeah. As the r- uh, running back. Just, as the crack addicted. Who was on like yeah. Wild and Crazy Kids or something when he was a... Uh, Child. Omar Gooding. Yes. Oh, yeah. Okay. I didn't. I never connected the dots. That's Cuba Gooding Jr.'s little brother, older brother. Uh, according to Oscar, it is. Okay. No, that that makes total sense. Yeah. Cuba Gooding Jr.'s is uh, Cuba Gooding Senior. Is his father. So yeah. Wow. There you go. Yeah. Wild and Crazy Kids. <laughs> Secrets of the Hidden Temple. Double Dare. <laughs> he was in Ghost Dad. How about oh, that? Uh, directed by Sidney Poitier. Um, Ghost Dad. <laughs> no. No oh, comment. Hey, hey. <laughs> Yeah, so we've been sort of dancing around this, but let's talk about Al Pacino, who is obviously, for, for, all, for all intents and purposes, the protagonist of this film. And we obviously spent a lot of time waxing his car on our recent Insider episode, but it's crazy to think that he did the Insider and Any Given Sunday back-to-back November and December of 1999. I mean, he really he really uh, came to the end of this decade in a big, bad way with two of, my, I think, two of his greatest performances. Like, there's so much about this movie that's silly, and there's so much of it that's over the top. This doesn't feel like one one of the over-the-top Pacino performances to me. I think there's actually something kind of understated. I mean, he spends a lot of time yelling, of course, because he's standing on the sidelines yeah. yelling at his players, but there's a lot of very subtle, nuanced things he's doing in this film. Yeah, I mean, uh, it's kind of his profession in this movie to be yelling and be very, I don't know, bombastic all the time. Yeah. But I think as compared to something like Brian Barini's favorite movie, Son of a Woman, uh, <laughs> it's a little bit more, <laughs> it feels more appropriate and maybe a bit more restrained, especially those moments when he's not on the field, not yelling at his team, and he's seemingly very depressed very drunk and very lonely that uh he kind of shows some nuance for the character i'd say yeah dan was floating to me that he thinks that al pacino might be the best cinematic drunk be better at playing drunk than anybody else and i just off the top of my head i can't think of anybody who's better at it i mean well nick cage won an oscar yeah fair enough okay (laughs) um yeah no no no. i think that's right i mean the bombastic over the top pacino is only there to cert like for a reason like that's what football coaches are supposed to be but when he's off the field you're right he's very low-key and sort of exhausted by all the exertion he's expended during the football scenes. Yeah, I've been on a Pacino kick too because with Insider, Irishman, and now this. Are, are we understating how sort of important he is to the success of this movie? Because just thinking about it now, like this movie even come close to working with almost anyone else in this role. Yeah, what did you say? The other person considered was De Niro. Exactly. And I think this would be an awful movie with De Niro. I mean, I'm, I'd be interested yeah. in seeing that movie, but you know, you know, I, I think the world is divided into Pacino people and De Niro people. Like, I think you kind of take sides with heat and are you more into Pacino's Vincent Hanna or are you more into uh, De Niro's Neil Macaulay and I don't think you know there's no wrong or right answer I'm just a Pacino guy personally so I'm always going to side with Pacino and so I would much rather see this movie with Pacino than with De Niro but I'm sure there's a lot of people who would like to see the De Niro version of this I just yeah Pacino might be the greatest cinematic drunk but he's definitely the greatest cinematic exhausted person like nobody plays exhausted (laughs) like Pacino and yeller too which is like yeah he's either exhausted or yelling (laughs) Whereas uh, I think De Niro, as much as I like him, plays things a bit flatter, I would say. He can be very intense and very uh, frightening or whatever, even if you want to go to like uh, Cape Fear. But I can't see him yelling at a team of players and motivating them and having that like that game of inches speech at the end where he just comes across as both pathetic, but also a great leader. Yeah. No, I mean, Pacino really like he fucking paints such a masterpiece with that. It's a silly speech if you just were to read it on the page, but Pacino makes it fucking fly (laughs) because it starts off being so so pathetic you know so sad I'm, I've made every mistake a middle aged man can make I pissed away all my money I, t- I chased away everyone that you're, you're just kind of putting your head in your hands and being like Jesus Christ where's this going and then he <laughs> he just fucking steers it into the most inspirational thing you've ever inspirational thing you've ever heard and it's just it's just it's a beautiful
beautiful thing. It's an amazing moment. Well, it go- goes back to uh, our friend Bar- Brian Barini's uh, statement that he's the best deliverer of lines to make it seem like they're just natural coming off the top. Exactly of right. And, and I think a lot of his stuff in this movie would come out extremely cheesy uh, if it was anybody else, right? And, and so he that th- that is his genius. By the way, has, has De Niro ever been motivational in any movie in any role he's ever done? I can't think of anything. Uh, not off the top of my head, no. <laughs> just De Niro and like the uh, Walter Matthau role from Bad News Bears trying to lead a team of young kids. I want to see that. Yeah. Well, I'm just thinking of him in um, him as the ultimate Eagles fan in Silver Linings Playbook, right? Okay. Probably sure. one of one of his most recent great performances. But he's such a football nut in that that I'm trying to I'm trying to graft that personality onto the Tony D'Amato character. P.S. This movie has not just an incredible cast, but I love character names in this movie. Yeah, Tony D'Amato is such an incredible name. Christina Pagniacci, <laughs> Willie Beeman, even down to Tyler Cherubini, the single greatest single second string quarterback name ever. Dr. Harvey Mandrake. Exactly. <laughs> I love it. Or, you know, Shark well, LeVay. Yeah, let's, let's get into uh, Shark LeVay. Because okay. A, that's a fantastic performance. B, it's a fantastic name. C, he's named after the team he plays on. Right. So it's Shark LeVay playing for the Sharks yep. in Shark Stadium. <laughs> Yeah, oh, everything you need to know about this movie can be summed up with that statement. I know it's it's funny that he's basically playing himself too, of like a linebacker that revolutionized the position and is at the latter end of his career. Uh, he does a fantastic job with it, even if it's just playing really close to home. Uh, There's a lot of pathos in that yeah. in that moment at the end when he um, when they think that he's done, like when they think he's taken the you know the last bad hit. They really they really set that up very very well. And yeah, when he's not opening his eyes, you can. I mean, this movie tonally veers so wildly yeah. from like the really like heavy pathos stuff to just something so silly as a guy's eyeball popping out of his head you know within the same game but somehow Stone just manages to make it work that kind of goes back to something you said earlier Oscar about watching this movie high I don't know whether this would be very good for that because it does like totally it's all over the place and the pacing like the games are really fast and fun but then you've got moments where it's just Al Pacino wandering around his wonderful looking house drunk like knocking stuff over (laughs) Um, making jambalaya yeah no this this is a good architect texture porn movie for sure like there's some incredible houses in this i think you told me that cap rooney's house is actually dan marino's house yeah in that's Miami, probably the right? ugliest in the oh, house really? yeah. <laughs> yeah. al pacino's house is incredible that. even when they have the christina pagniacci's house yeah. is amazing the yeah. press conference at the end of the movie over the credits mm-hmm. like has it's just like wonderful art deco architecture and mm-hmm. it's just a very good miami movie i think I, I'm, you, you literally took the words right out of my mouth i want more miami movies miami is a very underrated cinematic city and we actually chased any given Sunday with Miami Vice last night, which is just <laughs> well, we were trying to stay awake to make it to dinner. Chasing the dragon. Yeah. Um, and yeah, I just I just can't get enough Miami in my movies. I love Miami so much. Yeah, I mean, it's a very cinematic city. It's also just like the scene of incredible fashion throughout this movie. So many people are wearing leather pants or leather shirts <laughs> right. in this movie. And I am 100% here for it. Absolutely. That. Just something about that final press conference. One thing that it's small, but I love that they start the crowd credits before that little final coda yeah. i don't know the movie's so long that it just it just feels right yeah. but also do you feel like him going to the expansion team sort of undercuts like his arc throughout the movie like him going out with one last bang and sort of learning that maybe the game has passed mm-hmm. him by i don't know i feel like it's a little it's a little weird that he's doing the expansion thing although it is kind of a fun moment of course the implication is that this guy has nothing else right if it, it, yeah. it's it's the you know the woody allen thing like as soon as i stop writing and stop making movies i'm just gonna die so like i'm, I'm gonna have to just keep writing and keep making movies because otherwise I'm going to kill over and die. If this guy stops coaching a football team, he's probably just going to drink himself to death. Yeah, plus he pissed one. Exactly. So yeah, I mean he's got nothing. He's got sure. nothing else. He's chased away everybody who ever loved him. We just watched. You can go on YouTube and you can watch the deleted Jim Caviezel scene where Jim Caviezel plays his son Tom. Very sad. It's like very uncomfortable. It's not a great scene, and I can see why <laughs> they cut it. Yeah, I mean it just goes to show you that like this guy literally has nothing else in his life. His son wants nothing to do with him. He's never going to see his grandchildren. It's, you know, it's very much like. Uh, Nick Nolte in uh, Warrior, right? Like he's just, yeah. <laughs> and it's not even just an alcohol thing. It's like his lifestyle and his dedication to the game and the way that he has just sort of alienated himself from everybody and everything besides coaching just makes him kind of an island. It's also unrealistic that Cameron Diaz would not have been in contract negotiations with Willie Beeman. They wouldn't have let him sign to el- sign elsewhere. They would have at least put the franchise tag on him. So that kind of bothers me. I don't really know how the uh, the contracting <laughs> works in the AFFA. <laughs> <laughs> That's fair. Well, it, it is an interesting coda because, um, like you said, the film is over. The arc is complete. He says, the very first line of the press conference, he says,
because, uh, you know, San Francisco basically ended our playoff. I mean, they, they lost in the second. We determined he lost in the second round of the playoffs, right? Something like that, yeah. yeah they just got, I mean, and it's kind of like the end of Moneyball, right? They, mm-hmm. they, they still lose in the first round of the playoffs after having, <laughs> you know, the 20-game winning streak and having the most amazing season. For all intents and purposes, the climax has passed in that final Dallas game. It's not about them making it to the Pantheon Cup. It's about them becoming a team, and they become a team in that game. And so the arc is complete. The movie's done. But I do appreciate the, the fun little coda and the fact that the credits are rolling over it. Do you think Oliver Stone partly put that in to potentially have a sequel in Albuquerque? <laughs> I've watched that fucking movie. <laughs> right? If they made a sequel now, it would be Jamie Foxx as the head coach and Al Pacino as the as the general manager, right? I'd watch that movie too. How do we feel <laughs> yeah. about Cameron Diaz? Uh, in, in general? <laughs> well, it's just, it's, you know, it's funny. Charlie's Angels, the new Charlie's Angels came out last weekend and kind of, uh, oh, I just, I just dated this podcast. It came out last weekend <laughs> and, um, and it was a big flop and it didn't work and it was kind of something nobody was asking for. But we have to remember that like both of the original, original Charlie's Angels movies were both big hits <laughs> from Mick G. And there was a moment there where Cameron Diaz was the biggest movie star in the world. And it seemed like between this and Gangs of New York a couple years later, she was sort of, and being John Malkovich, which is also a 99 movie that's slipped through the cracks on this series, unfortunately, we probably won't get to it, but she's pretty phenomenal in that as well the same year. I mean, so there was a moment where she was like almost legitimate, right? It's actually funny because I, I'm in my mind, I think I think of her only as like the Charlie's Angels, like kind of the mask dipshitty blonde yeah. thing. And yet she, all those roles you described, like she has a ton of range right? yeah. where going from being John Malkovich to like a woman who would eat her own young in any given Sunday <laughs> to like that kind of ditzy blonde. Uh, she was doing really well there. And, and now she's basically retired. I mean, she's done. Like, I think she just, you know, she made her money. She did her thing. She got married. She had kids. And I think, I think she's pretty much done, which is too bad because I like Cameron Diaz a lot. And I think she really like shows up to work in this movie. And it might be because Pacino is helping her to raise her game a little bit. But I think she's, I think she's quite good. I think she's quite effective. It's a great scene where she goes walking through the uh, the locker room, shaking hands with everybody and has to deflect the advances of uh, Willie Beeman <laughs> where she does some <laughs> tap dancing, which I appreciate. She's actually great. I'm just looking at her filmography. Man, she, I mean, she went something about Mary being John Malkovich, Any Given Sunday, Charlie's Angels, Vanilla Sky, Gangs of New York. Oh, yeah, she's great in Vanilla Sky. Like a, she's really yeah, good. Yeah, all within like a four-year period. I love that. Uh, and those are working with big-time directors, big-time filmmakers, and, and big-time movies, and not to mention Shrek, right? Sure. Or, oh, uh, she, yeah, she's got that Shrek money. That's why she can That's why she can cruise. <laughs> yeah, she's good. She, she doesn't have to work again. She's got those Shrek checks. Shrek yeah. checks, yeah, for sure. <laughs> but, but you're right. Ever since, yeah, In Her Shoes. Oh, yeah. <laughs> she hasn't really made a good movie since, I don't know, Gangs of New York. I mean, it's Bad crazy. Teacher and Sex Tape. Those were like the last two, right? Yeah, Bad Teacher, Night and Day. She did. Oh, ah, yeah, the, that's a James that's Tom a James Cruise. Mangold movie. Yeah, the, oh, God, The Other Woman. No, I, I like her. And, and I think people were surprised at how well she commanded this performance when it came out uh, because, like I said, she was just coming off There's Something About Mary, and that's where she moved on from being just the hot blonde in, uh, in, in The Mask. But yeah, I mean, it's an interesting, interesting arc to her career, for sure. She does not have kids, by the way. We also just realized, lest we forget, she also was incredible in the greatest movie ever made, The Counselor. <laughs> oh, God. Unbelievable scene. <laughs> I, on I the, still have it? not seen. I still not seen. Oh that my movie. goodness! Please do yourself a favor. It's it's a whole How lot does of Javier movie. Bardem describe what he sees in that? <laughs> it's something to do with an octopus or yeah. a squid or yeah yeah. See the counselor post haste. It's an incredible movie. And now and now she's married to the good Charlotte guy. Oh, really? Yeah, Benji Matt. Good for, eh, good for her. Good for him. I guess <laughs> more so. <laughs> um, Matt, I know you got a bunch of notes. What what else you got? Because we sort of fast tracked this episode, I, I really um, have been kind of flying by the seat of my pants and don't have quite as many notes as I usually do. I, I just am so surprised that this movie doesn't have a little more of a legacy, and I'm kind of glad that we're getting to champion it a little bit. Like, not to bring up this word that we use too often, but, like, is this movie problematic? Like, is this a tough movie to to recommend to people nowadays? Like, I mean, there are, you know, like you were saying, yep. treatment of women is a problem, but is it inaccurate for this for this industry, for this kind of lifestyle? I mean, I mean, it's it's yeah. it's cringy for sure, but is it is it inaccurate? Uh, it's probably not inaccurate, especially for for that time, I'd like to think that athletes have gotten a lot better uh, in modern times, and there's been a focus by the leagues of uh, you know making sure everyone's educated and you know more upstanding.
upstanding individuals than they had been in the past. But no, I don't think there should be any sort of reticence to recommend this movie. It, it's sort of in that weird zone where, I mean, I, I think we all, this is not a masterpiece. This, this has its its problems, but its problems are part of the fun. If, if nothing else, this is just a fun fucking two hour and 40 minute movie. <laughs> and it, do, it, it does fly by. And it, it's not it's not enjoyable because it's bad. It's just enjoyable because it's fucking insane and crazily ambitious. Yeah, I, I definitely push back on the notion that this is a good bad movie. I think this is a good movie. I mean, yeah. it's crazy on on um, Rotten Tomatoes, 52%. I mean, that is legitimately rotten. I, I will say that I think this is a masterpiece in the same way like a Jackson Pollock painting is a masterpiece. It might not be for everyone, <laughs> but it is exceptional at what it is. It's expressionistic. Yeah. I would I would completely agree with that. Pardon me for being highfalutin about this, but there's something kind of like Eisensteinian about the way that uh, Stone concocts this thing and cuts this thing. I mean, he really is sort of like, I don't know, he's 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 kind of transcending. He's like sort of like taking it to the next level and it's not for everybody and it's not nearly as um as prestigious something like jfk or even the doors for that matter but it does feel very much of a piece with his with his best work i would say this is top five stone for me and it's obviously something that he like cares a lot about i know he's a huge football play- fan he tried to even be the uh the dennis miller role on monday night football really when they had those auditions yeah oh wow i remember him being in consideration for it because he's such a big football play- fan <laughs> and at the same time was a bit more of a accepted personality despite the conspiracy theory stuff at the time He's also, I think, I was telling Matt this the other day, one of my favorite all-time celebrity sightings in Los Angeles where in the landmark uh, theater bathroom, him just groaning at a urinal and putting his head against the uh, the wall in front of him. Just one of the more awkward sights I've ever seen. <laughs> I mean... He's a weird... I mean, he's a weird guy, yeah, for sure. He has lived a lot of life, man. I mean, you know, he obviously had multiple tours in Vietnam. He dealt with coke addiction. He was an Oscar-winning screenwriter years before he ever directed a movie. First time he ever worked with Pacino wrote Scarface right so he and Pacino go way back he has just had such an interesting career won two best director Oscars 86 and 89 like within three years of each other for Platoon and Born on the Fourth of July we haven't even talked about Born on the Fourth of July and now he's kind of persona non grata like he basically sort of like talked himself into director's jail he yeah, does he's... documentaries and stuff but he, he didn't just talk himself into director's jail he <laughs> okay. made terrible movies. okay fair enough he made Savages Alexander <laughs> God there's so many Snowden. so many connections yes no that is Snowden his last movie that might be his last you know yeah, narrative feature yeah. I mean God so many connections we watched Miami Vice last night Jamie Foxx Colin Farrell Alexander yeah I, I find him fascinating I think JFK is the one I go back to the most that's just one of those like Sunday afternoon even that's kind of a hangover movie even though it's so heavy right yeah I, like that's the high watermark for me but you've probably seen any given Sunday more far more times yeah, well it's, it's ever so slightly shorter it's probably about an hour <laughs> shorter <laughs> but uh, but you know stuff like Wall Street Platoon I mean those movies are just insanely watchable like they're talk just, radio even talk radio is fun too yeah, yeah. So, what, what's the James Woods one Salvador, Salvador yeah. yeah I mean he went on a crazy run there in the in the late 80s and early 90s where he was kind of in a I mean he was sort of in Tarantino territory where he was he was on such a hot streak that his movies just became events is this his last good movie any given Sunday I mean I think W has its merits <laughs> I guess <laughs> Yeah, World Trade Center is bad. Wall Street sequel is bad. And Savages, that's it. I, Alexander. Savages, yeah. We saw Savages together. I don't know. <laughs> is Savages terrible? I, I don't remember a single thing about it. Uh, she Blake Lively describes Taylor Kish as having wargasms yes. in that movie when they have sex. Yes. So yeah, it's it's a terrible <laughs> fucking movie. <laughs> But isn't uh, isn't it uh, Salma Hayek? She's like the drug lord, and Benicio del Toro del Toro is like her main enforcer or whatever. Yeah, is John Travolta in that? Is yep. the FBI? Absolutely, agent absolutely, he is. Yep. Oscar uh, next oeuvre Stone. Hmm. Oh God. <laughs> 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 I don't might know. have to progress backwards through that one. Um. Yeah, I think yeah. this is his last great movie. I mean, he may be done, and I would say this is now. You know, I was going to say this is Pacino's second to last great performance, but I just saw The Irishman recently, and he's a fucking revelation in that. So. So Pacino's back. So New York set drama by Oliver Stone called White Lies is supposed to supposed to have been filming this year. Oh wow, starring Benicio the aforementioned Benicio del Toro. Yeah, I'm in. Like a domestic drama. I, I'm presuming it was coke related, but <laughs> <laughs> that's lies, no, not, not at all. lies. <laughs> but um, but yeah, I love Any Given Sunday. I'm constantly singing its praises. I'm constantly reminding people what a wonderful film it is. I'm constantly rewatching the you know Game of Inches speech. I just think this movie's great. The only only great football movie. <laughs> we can all I mean, you might be right. Like, we've been talking about it all weekend. I, I can't think of another great one. Talking about the art, you know, like how artistic this movie is. This movie is truly artistic and ambitious in that way without being pretentious in, in the least, right? Yeah, that's kind of an incredible trick that he pulls doing that. But now that I'm thinking about it, it'd be kind of fun to have a really pretentious, serious football movie. <laughs> 
Like, could you imagine like a Terrence Malick football movie? Oh, please give me all of that. I mean, I've never actually seen Friday Night Lights. Isn't Friday Night Lights pretty pretentious? It's Peter Berg, right? Uh, Not in the same way. I would almost say that like uh, something like Concussion is probably more serious than any of these because it takes itself so seriously, it seems like. But Friday Night Lights is kind of fun, has its ups and downs. It's just more of a true life story of like the small town. I mean, we were making fun of Varsity Blues at the beginning of this, but it's a good football movie, man. That movie's fun. (laughs) Friday Night Lights seems profound just only because they have the explosion in the sky soundtrack. I was reading that uh, Oliver Stone wanted uh, Godspeed, you black emperor, to score all of uh, Any Given Sunday, but he decided he decided to go with uh, Fat Boy Slim and Missy Misdemeanor Elliot and DMX (laughs) instead. I was telling Dan last night we were watching Any Given Sunday that I was never much of a hip hop guy in high school, but for some reason I really responded to DMX. Something about that guy's (laughs) aggressiveness. I don't know. It's like he just always seems so angry, and he was always just screaming and yelling in his music videos, and he always had like pit bulls with him and stuff. He was just an aggressive guy. That's interesting for a loquacious man like yourself, Matt. There was a thing on uh, I saw on Reddit. Someone had compiled the top 200 hip hop artists of all time and their relative vocabularies. I like, <laughs> like where this is how, going. How many different how many words they used? And DMX was last. <laughs> <laughs> I think he was not just last. He's like an outlier last on that because yeah. they're not going to be able to compile all the different different tones and meanings of barks. Hey, brevity, right? DMX is all about brevity. Yeah, if you can if you can sell millions of records using only forty five words, then he's the Hemingway of rap. <laughs> First time anyone's ever said that sentence. <laughs> Brand new sentence. Dang I don't God. think we're going to do any better than that. Unless you guys got anything else. I mean, uh, this is this is it, man. This is the end. This yeah. is the end of Retrospectating 99. I think we should probably do one more maybe wrap-up episode where we kind of just go back and reflect on the year as a whole. But for all intents and purposes, this is the end. Yeah, hopefully I didn't fuck up the end too bad. <laughs> no, you, you helped us bring this thing in for a landing. We appreciate you being here. Until next time, until our next uh, series, whatever that might be, this has been Retrospectating 1999. Say goodbye, Matt and Dan. Bye, Matt and Dan. Goodbye. Right here, right now, right here.